Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today we're going to be discussing loving-kindness meditation, and we're going to actually do loving-kindness meditation as part of our session today. I would like to welcome you if you're on Facebook or YouTube or listening over the podcast. This is an opportunity for us to get together and learn and practice the teachings of Gautama Buddha. On Sunday at 9 o'clock, we cover one chapter in developing a life practice, the path that leads to Nibbana. And then on Wednesdays at 9 o'clock Thai time, we set aside time to have questions from students regarding meditation practice or anything from the week of study or anything that's coming up in your practice that you have questions on. So I would like to invite you, wherever you're listening to this or watching this, whether it's Facebook or YouTube, to put questions into the comment section of the social media platform that you're on and our moderator Max will ask the question during class and we even have students in our virtual classroom which is in Zoom so if you would like to join you should see the connect information in the description of this live stream wherever you're watching it you can connect straight into Zoom if you like because in Zoom you can either put a question into the comment section or you can actually raise your hand and ask your question live. And of course, as we answer questions, if you have follow-ups, you're welcome to ask a follow-up as well. So today we're set up to discuss and actually do loving kindness meditation. And as we get going here, I would like to just kind of pause and see if there's any questions from any of the people who are watching, anything that's come up since our last session, either with breathing, mindfulness meditation, loving kindness meditation, chanting, the chapter that we're studying, which is chapter 17, uh, dissolving the ego, the ego serves no purpose, and any of the other teachings that have been shared through our Facebook group or in the book that you might be uh, studying. We'd like to just kind of open the floor and see if we have any questions from anybody that's listening to the live stream. Hi, David. So I think I'd like to kick things off. Today we're practicing loving-kindness meditation. And often when we do this, we start with breathing mindfulness meditation to to calm the mind. Now, uh, of course, when we're practicing with you, it's guided. When we go out and do this on our own, what's some guidance you could give us to to when we should transfer from breathing mindfulness to loving-kindness? Is there a, a certain level of calmness we should be experiencing? And if not, should we just proceed anyway? I know that in my case, sometimes I actually find the mind becomes more calm. It's not the common situation, but sometimes 
I find the mind becomes more calm when I actually switch from the breath to the affirmations of loving kindness. Yeah, every time you meditate is going to be different because of impermanence. So there's really no set hard, fast rule. You go with what makes sense for you and what works for you. I definitely suggest doing breathing mindfulness meditation first for some period of time in order to kind of root the mind on the breath and kind of calm it down and settle it down so that you can develop more single-mindedness where your mind isn't really scattered before you start doing loving-kindness meditation. This way you can really focus on each affirmation that we use during loving-kindness meditation. So it's really up to you how long you would like to do breathing mindfulness meditation, or even if you sit down with the intention to do breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation. But if you choose to just stick with breathing mindfulness meditation, that's fine too. The whole thing is, is that every single person is going to need to eliminate craving, anger, and ignorance or unknowing of true reality, these three poisons. And breathing mindfulness meditation is one of the antidotes for the poison of craving. Loving kindness meditation is one of the antidotes for the anger or hatred and all the other variations that come out of that poison, like frustration, irritation, annoyance, and so forth. So you're going to need to do a lot of this meditation of both breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation. There isn't any kind of magic recipe. It's filling up these buckets. And I talk about meditation as having these buckets and scooping water into them. And the benefits are accumulative. So you're going to need to be scooping a lot of water. So there's no magic recipe. You're going to need to do a lot of meditation to train the mind in the direction of enlightenment. Just do what works best. And if that's five minutes of breathing mindfulness meditation and then loving kindness or one minute or 20 minutes or an hour or whatever it is, and each time it's going to change, right? Like it's not always going to be the same. One time you might sit down and do it one way and another time you might do it another way. But the mind always ask this question about, you know, what's the kind of perfect way to do this? And what's the recipe? How long should I meditate? You know, what's the exact way to do it? And this is just the mind craving permanence. And once again, that longing, that mental longing, that wanting, that desire, having this kind of perfect image in the mind of what meditation should be, and we carry that around, not just with meditation, but that perfect job, that perfect partner, the perfect place to live, everything that we're currently involved in, oftentimes we have one more thing or 10 more things or 20 more things that the mind's longing for and craving and desiring. And this is a common question that comes up all the time with meditation and I never really answer it because there's really no perfect time. Perfection only exists in the mind, whether it's meditation, a life partner, a house, a car, a job. Perfection only exists in the mind, and the mind just keeps chasing that. And that's one of the reasons why it becomes bored and lonely and discontent because we make a certain decision for a certain job. We think it's the perfect job. We build up to it. We get excited. We get anxious to start this new job. It goes well for the first few weeks. And then all of a sudden we start finding problems with it. 
and the mind isn't as happy as it was, as excited, because the mind was moving into those pleasant feelings. And because it was so happy with this new job, and that's impermanent, then it kind of switches over to now being sad or lonely or bored. And the same thing happens with our partner. We meet a new person, we go out on the first couple of dates, we get so excited. This new person's in our life and it's so happy. And we think this is the person of our dreams and this is the one. And then all of a sudden, a few weeks or months or however long into it, we, we realize it's, it's just another person. It's just another human being kind of struggling through life just like you. And then we crave a new car. We just want this new car. And we know it's the object of our affection. And if we just get this new car. So we could go through thing after thing after thing. And and this question about how long to meditate, which is so common, it's just one more thing that the mind's grasping for and looking for that perfect answer. And the reality is, is just do it and see what works. That's the best way to do it. And and each time you have a meditation session, realize it's going to be different because of impermanence. Yeah, thanks for that. Very helpful. So this idea of like perfection and also seeking that pleasant thing we had before, maybe in meditation, that can really apply here during meditation where we maybe assume that unless the mind is calm or unless I'm having a pleasant experience in meditation, then I'm not doing it right. And actually, I've, I've come to feel that even, even if the mind isn't calm, things are flying around, something is still happening. Like, I think often we feel like, oh, nothing's happening here, but actually it is, like something is happening. And this goes back to my original question because you know, we think, oh, okay, I better not transition until the mind is calm enough to do so. But even if you're following the affirmation and it, you know, it doesn't feel as clear as it did last time, let's say. It, in my view, something is still happening. I'm interested to know your thoughts there. Yeah, because if you are in meditation and what you realize is the mind's busy, that's right mindfulness. Right mindfulness, the seventh step of the Eightfold Path, is awareness of mind. So you're right. Sometimes we have a good run of meditation, a week or two or three and the mind's really feeling good. It's feeling like it's in the middle. All the, the cylinders are on firing exactly right. We're getting all this benefit. And then all of a sudden, boom, like it feels like you might have hit a wall or just all this clutter is in the mind. And the mind now starts craving those pleasant feelings of the previous meditations you've been doing for the last few weeks. And now it wants to get back to there. And now it's discontent because it's feeling all this clutter and then people might have negative self-talk and, oh, I'm failing, I'm not doing such a good job. You know, we kind of expect this linear progression to the enlightened mind when in reality it's more rocky. You know, it's very much up and down and up and down. So we can't get attached to anything. We can't crave anything. There's no such thing as a good mental longing with a strong eagerness even things like meditation you can't crave meditation you can't crave nibbana you can't crave knowing all the buddhist teachings in a certain period of time you can't be attached to the five precepts meaning you can't have this mental longing that 
oh gosh, I want to practice at this really high level, the five precepts. And when you don't do that, you're going to feel guilty if you have this longing rather than just realizing this is a life practice. There's kind of like the ceiling, which the Buddha kind of laid out and said, okay, this is enlightenment. This is an enlightened mind. And everybody's just working up towards that and just being understanding that it's going to take time and we can't crave anything. But you're right. If you sit down and the mind's busy or cluttered, that's productive because you know that, okay, my mind is busy today and I need to work on this. And maybe instead of doing my normal two meditations a day or one meditation a day, I'm going to bump that up to two or three or four. Or maybe I'm going to expand the amount of time that I meditate. Or maybe I decide to shrink it because I would rather do it tonight when my mind will probably be a little bit more calm. But the important thing is is to never give up. Never, never, never give up. Don't ever beat yourself up and feel like you're not doing it good enough. Don't feel guilty. Don't feel shameful. You know, if you were planning to do meditation in the morning and something arose, impermanence came, right? Somebody gave you a call. They needed a ride. You had to head out the door. You couldn't get to your meditation. Don't feel guilty about that because it's a life practice. You're going to have to do lots of meditation. So yeah, there's this mind, you know, it just wants to hold on and hold on even to all the good stuff like meditation. And we can't even crave that. This mental longing, whenever you feel your mind pulling in a certain direction and wanting something so badly, or even just a little bit, you got to train it to let go. Yes, I'm glad you clarified that, that there's, there's no such thing as a good mental longing with strong eagerness, yeah. which is, which is in, in your book, which you use as the definition of attachment. And I think it's, it's really helpful to uh, make, make it very clear. What, would, what do we mean when we say attachment? Because attachment is a word that's used outside of Buddha's teachings. It's used yeah. in you know, um, self-help. It's used in parenting. And, uh, and often, it, even in Buddhist circles, people talk about you know, good attachments and bad attachments. And um, when you consider what we really mean by attachment, there's no such thing as a good attachment. Yeah, these words craving, desire, attachment, they already have certain meaning for us, right? Usually when someone hears craving when they first start studying the Buddhist teachings, they think craving for food. Right. Because we get these cravings for chocolate or craving for ice cream or something like this. And, you know, part of studying the Buddhist teachings is understanding how we're using these words in the Buddhist teachings. And that craving, desire, attachment, clinging, grasping, holding, all of these words mean a mental longing with a strong eagerness. And there's no such thing as a good one. Even something like Say I had a longing to help people attain enlightenment and learn the Buddhist teachings. If I had a craving for that, if I had a desire, if I was attached to it and I had a certain expectation that a certain number of students should be studying with me, even though that's a good, wholesome thing to share the teachings with the Buddha, if there's craving, desire, attachment, grasping, holding, longing, this mental longing with a strong eagerness, The mind's going to be sad if my mind expects 50 people to show up to a live session and only 10 do, then the mind's going to be sad or it might feel guilty or it might race out and do a whole bunch of things 
to try to propagate and try to get so many people to come and it just works itself and works itself and works itself rather than just being peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, whether there's three people or one person or 30 people that show up. So this is where I say the Buddhist teachings aren't about necessarily what's right or wrong. It's about explaining and understanding why the mind is discontent. So even in situations where you have a longing to help people, this is a really good thing. It's coming from a good place. I have an intention to help people. But if there's a longing and there's a craving, there's a desire, there's an attachment, then the mind's going to be discontent when it can't help people. Or if you're trying to help somebody and they don't want your help, now the mind's going to feel bad or feel sad. So any time the mind has that longing with a strong eagerness, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing or whatever, you have to eliminate it 100%. That's the only way to get to enlightenment. Thanks, David. So we have a question from Amina. Amina asks, uh, so yes, then it follows that we should not label any meditation session. There are no good meditations or bad meditations, just meditate. Is that correct? That's 100% correct, Amina. Just meditate. Just meditate. There's nothing, We don't have to label it. We don't have to judge it. We don't have to qualify it as good or bad, exactly like you just said, Amina. That's perfect. I can see James's hand is raised, so I'm going to unmute you, James. I just had a general question about um, like translating single-mindedness um, from meditation to everyday life. Um, I found that at times, you know, I can have the single-mindedness in meditation, but outside of meditation, my mind may, may be um, quite busy and not always in an overtly um, discontent way, I would say, but just, you know, a lot of thoughts are running that um, kind of prevent me from residing in, in the present moment. Um, and I was just wondering if you had any general advice. Is it just a situation of continuing to meditate or are there other actions that maybe I should be um, taking? Yes, that's a great question, uh, James. So the goal of meditation and our whole life practice is as part of this training of the mind to get to enlightenment is to develop what you called single-mindedness or singleness of mind where the mind can just focus with clarity and concentration on one thing and this comes with training so yes the breathing mindfulness meditation is part of that and being able to do it in meditation and it sounds like you've been pretty successful with that and then moving it into daily life which is where it becomes the most beneficial Right? If we're only attaining single-mindedness in meditation, that's great. That's where it needs to start. But the real goal, which is what James is talking about, is how do I move this into my daily life? And a couple of suggestions there is, one, make that transition from your meditation into daily life somewhat of a slow one. You know, like don't just pop up out of meditation and bolt out the door unless you really had to for a particular reason, but don't make that a regular habit, right? So just kind of put a little bit of buffer in between your meditation and going out the door, kind of a nice transition between those things. And then in your daily life, the way to develop singleness of mind is by only doing one thing at a time. The Buddha, he said, when you're talking, know that you're talking. When you're eating, know that you're eating. When you're walking, know that you're walking. 
When you're defecating, know you're defecating. When you're urinating, know you're urinating. So whenever you're doing something, you know, even sitting, you said when you're sitting, know that you're sitting. Just focus on one thing at a time. And when those thoughts come to the mind, even in daily life, try to cut them off just like you do in meditation or let them go. And by doing this, by so by doing meditation, by having a nice transition between meditation and going outside in daily life, by doing just one thing at a time, and then as thoughts do come up, just let them go and cut them off just like you do in meditation. And it's going to be more and more volume of you doing that, that the mind will gradually come more and more into the present moment and you'll develop more singleness of mind. Uh, You're welcome. I have a, um, a follow-up for that. So sometimes when I'm involved with certain tasks that are quite analytical, like um, today I was working on, for example, a, a tax return that isn't due until next February, but I'm just doing it now. And so it's not really urgent. It's certainly important, but it's not urgent. And yet my mind just wants to get to the end. Mm-hmm. And... and there is a kind of concentration there, but there's also a kind of stress that comes with this overworking of the analytical part of the mind. It's probably the best words I can find to describe it, but it's quite uncomfortable when you pay attention and yet it's quite difficult to put it down until it's done. So any advice for that situation? Yeah, one of the things that I noticed, uh, especially when I was you know, living in America is the mind always wants to race. It always wants to get done what it needs to get done. It seems like we're always in a hurry to do something, right? This is why we jump in our cars or bicycle or motorbike and just go. And the mind's always focused on the next 10 things. And we're always in a hurry. And as you start developing singleness of mind, it's like, what am I in a hurry to do? What, what am I in a hurry to accomplish? only thing I'm going to do is die. Like that's the only thing that I'm going to do in this life is I'm absolutely going to die. Everything else is just like filler, right? We're just filling our time with all these other activities. So, okay. So say I hurry up and get that tax return done. Well, what's next? What are you going to do after that? You know, the mind is always grasping for that next thing. Even like when people sometimes get this book, Uh, initially, it says in the preface that perhaps you should just read one chapter a week. But I've had people that have read this in like one day or or three days, and they'll just plow through the book. And then they'll say, okay, David, I'm done. What's next? What do I need to do? And I'll say, okay, well, before I give you the next thing, you know, I just want to ask you when you get frustrated, what causes that? And of course, you know, they haven't absorb the information, they've just plowed through it because it's just one more thing on the to-do list. That's what we're taught in Western culture is to have this to-do list and check off all your to-do list every day. And if you check off all the items on your to-do list, you've been successful that day, right? And we just kind of race around doing all these things. And when we're done, we kind of look back and it's like, what did I really do today? What did what did I really get accomplished? The mind feels like the day like almost went by like in the blink of an eye. And I remember living in America sometimes and it's like a whole year. It's like, 
whoa, like what did I just do in the last year? Because the mind was just so busy doing task after task after task after task. So you really got to slow the mind down. And that's one of the reasons why we set up mindfulness in front of us when we meditate, that this is the instruction that the Buddha gave us, set up mindfulness in front of us. So it's time to meditate, right? You go to the bathroom or some people might choose to do yoga or prayer or stretch or whatever, get nice and comfortable, kind of take your time, kind of like get seated or whatever position you're going to get into. And then when you start your chanting, just kind of slowly kind of ramp up to your chanting and just take it nice and easy and ease the mind into meditation and ease it back out. No rush, no hurry for anything. And if you set up your life that way where you're not just go, 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 nose to the grindstone, right? We hear that in our culture all the time. And that's somehow like an accomplishment. If we've got our nose to the grindstone, that's success. But what you have to do is you have to redefine success in your mind. Well, what's a successful day for me? A successful day for me, going back to James's question, is maintaining singleness of mind all the way throughout the day as much as possible. And when I notice that I don't have singleness of mind, notice that and bring it back to the breath. Well, what's a successful day? A successful day is talking politely and kindly to everybody that I talk with. Some people might define a successful day as I need to speak with 30 people today, right? It's always about quantity. It's always about more, more, more. But if you redefine success in your life where the real goal is singleness of mind, good quality interactions, and every person that I speak with, I'm kind, I'm polite, I'm friendly, I'm taking my time, I'm really listening to the person, whether it's my partner, whether it's my child, whether it's the gardener, whether it's the mail carrier who delivers the mail, just smiling and being pleasant with that person. So we have to redefine what it is to have a successful day and recognize that this enlightenment is we're really creating it by slowing the mind down. If we feel the mind rushing and wanting to get to the next thing, that's when you got to pull back. And it's sometimes challenging in Western culture because while you might want to be pulling back and slowing things down, everybody else around you is go, 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 go. Everyone expects you there five minutes early, right? If you've got an appointment at nine o'clock and you show up at nine o'clock, you're kind of almost late in Western culture. So you've got to just kind of take it slow. You've got to kind of work on redefining success and realize that being in the present moment, handling one thing at a time, being friendly, kind, polite, respectful to all people around you, this is going to produce good results. Just having quantity is not going to necessarily produce good results. It's quality and uh, staying focused on that. Thank you, David. So we currently have no more questions. Okay. Before we start with our loving kindness meditation, I wanted to talk about the three poisons 
which we cover frequently in this group learning program. And I would like to review those, but I want to really focus on delusion, ignorance, and unknowing of true reality today because we tend to spend a lot of time talking about craving and anger or greed, hatred. So I really want to spend some time on this third poison. So let's just review the first two before we talk about the third one. There's something that's called the three poisons or the three unwholesome roots, also called the three fires. These need to be extinguished in order to attain enlightenment. We need to completely eliminate the poison or the unwholesome root or extinguish the fires of craving, anger, and ignorance or greed, hatred, and delusion. What greed or craving is, this is the mind's tendency to hold on. This is the outward searching. This is the outward seeking for satisfaction. The mind is always looking for satisfaction externally, right? It thinks if it gets that new iPhone, everything's going to be perfect. Or I get that new job or that new boyfriend, girlfriend, the new car, the new clothes, just one more thing, one more thing. The mind's just chasing with this mental longing, with a strong eagerness, this outward seeking for satisfaction. And because the mind is constantly seeking satisfaction externally, and all of these things are impermanent, meaning they don't last permanently, then you're just setting yourself up to fail. So for example, if I have this iPhone 6 and I just really want the new iPhone, whatever that is, and I want it and I crave it, and I have this expectation that I should have it, and I have this mental longing for it, and the mind just wants it and wants it and wants it, if I don't have the money to buy it or the store is out of it, then the mind's gonna be discontent. It's gonna be sad or frustrated or angry or hostile or what have you. Or if I do actually end up acquiring that new iPhone, then what's gonna happen is now I'm kind of attached to it, I'm holding onto it really tightly, but because it's impermanent, meaning I'm either gonna lose it, it's gonna break, maybe someone steals it or what have you, when this new phone is gone, then the mind's going to once again be sad or frustrated or irritated or what have you. This is the mind craving this mental longing with a strong eagerness for satisfaction externally. And when we allow the mind to latch on or attach, hold, grasp, right, cling, if we allow the mind to do that, then it's going to constantly be discontent because all of these external objects are all impermanent. So all the objects of our affection, whether it's a physical possession or whether it's a relationship or a job or an income or whatever it is, the mind's always gonna be discontent because all of these things are impermanent. So we can still have possessions, we can still have relationships, but it's when the mind starts forming this mental longing with a strong eagerness, this outward seeking, this searching, this grasping, this holding, this clinging to hold on to things tightly, that there's going to be discontentness. So the remedy there to solve this problem with the mind, this primary problem that Gautama Buddha discovered is breathing, mindfulness, meditation. 
This should be your daily meditation practice. You should always be doing breathing mindfulness meditation on a daily consistent basis, at least once a day. If you can get twice a day, that's even better. And if you can get up to three times a day, that's wonderful as well. But remember, it's all about quality. So having good quality and slowly build up your life practice to being able to do maybe two or three sessions and doing them for kind of longer and longer periods of time. When you're doing breathing mindfulness meditation, it should be just your body, the mind, and the breath. No music, no apps, no external stimulus, or not even timing it. There's no reason to even time how long you're, you're doing breathing mindfulness meditation. Just either sit, lay, or stand. The fourth position is walking, but we haven't really covered that much in this program. But just take your position, do the meditation, and just stick with it. Whenever there's thoughts that come to the mind, you let them go. You cut them off. You just let them go. And this is training the mind away from holding on because that's the primary problem that the Buddha discovered is the mind tends to hold on. It tends to latch on. So that's why in meditation, we're training the mind to let things go and let things go and just repeatedly let it go, let it go, let it go. You don't have to say anything. You don't have to do anything. We're just going to focus on the breath in this meditation. And that's the same reason why the second aspect to remedy or antidote or uproot or extinguish this fire, depending on how you're referring to these, either as the three poisons, the three unwholesome roots or the three fires, the other aspect is practicing generosity where we're sharing. We're sharing our time, our effort, our resources with other people, being able to willingly give to help other people. And that tends to train the mind to not hold on to things so tightly, eliminating kind of selfishness, right? Just by letting go. And this is the primary problem and why we need to focus on it so much, because this is what's causing the mind to be discontent, is this craving, this mental longing with a strong eagerness. Okay, so develop a meditation practice where you're practicing this daily and ramp up to it slowly and realize it's a gradual progression to build up this meditation practice and gradually find ways to be generous with people around you and being generous without any expectation of anything in return. Don't expect anything in return. Just be generous because it's a good thing to do and you're just training the mind to let go. Okay? The second poison is hatred or anger. This is where the mind becomes frustrated or irritated or annoyed or hostile. It, we also call this one aversion. And the reason why is because the mind kind of neurotically looks out for kind of enemies almost and becomes fearful. It becomes hostile, becomes aggressive. And we tend to put walls around us and pushing people away. That's why we call it aversion. Because when we have this hatred or anger or aversion, we can also call it ill will, that we push people away from us 
that could otherwise have been a very healthy relationship. Not that we have to be with that person all the time, but we, in order to attain enlightenment, you need to be able to have comfortable relationships, even if that relationship is two minutes long with all beings. But what happens is, you know, we go to maybe a coffee shop or a restaurant and the waiter or the cashier doesn't do things exactly the way we might want and the mind becomes hostile, right? So we have this mental longing, which is the craving. We have this mental longing. We have this expectation. We want things to be a certain way. And then when they're not that way, then the mind becomes angered or hostile or frustrated or irritated or annoyed. So we're causing that ourselves because of the craving. So if we get rid of the craving, it really helps to alleviate the frustration, the irritation, and all of these other discontent emotions. But this particular poison itself tends to wall itself off from other people. This is also where we can experience resentment. If something hasn't gone our way or somebody has harmed us, the mind might hold on to that. And then because of that harm that we experience, the mind then creates this wall and pushes people and blocks people out of our life. So this particular poison gets remedied with loving kindness meditation, which is what we're gonna do today. And then through practicing loving kindness meditation where we're cultivating this active goodwill in the mind, we can then practice loving kindness in daily life. So there's the meditation which is almost like filling up the gas tank. And then you take that with you in daily life and you practice active goodwill without judgment towards all beings. It's not just meditating and everything's going to be fine because we all know when you're sitting on the meditation cushion, things are pretty good. Things are pretty nice. But what we need to do is we need to transfer those benefits from meditation into daily life. So we use loving kindness meditation to cultivate this active goodwill towards all beings without judgment, but then we need to practice it in daily life. When we see various people, when we interact in our daily life, whether it's personal relationships or business relationships, or even just filling up our gas at the gas station, treating all beings with active goodwill without judgment, all beings every single person, whether it's a little baby, a child, whether it's an adult, whether it's an elderly person, everybody, active goodwill. And just having a a genuine interest in seeing all beings be peaceful. That's what active goodwill is. A genuine interest in seeing all beings be peaceful, seeing all beings be safe, all beings be well right? This active goodwill, right? Now let's talk about delusion or ignorance. And I prefer the words unknowing of true reality, because I feel that that's how the Buddha described it more. This words delusion or ignorance is what's being translated by the translators. But an enlightened being isn't going to refer to someone as ignorant, right? Because we use this in a derogatory way. So someone like Gautama Buddha, who's a perfectly fully enlightened Buddha, 
he's not going to refer to people as ignorant because it's pretty derogatory if we called somebody ignorant. What he referred to is more the unknowing of true reality, not knowing the true reality of the teachings that awaken the mind. I was interested in talking about this today because this week we're talking about ego in chapter 17. We're talking about dissolving the ego, and I broke that out for you in Sunday's talk with talking about non-self and talking about the conceit or arrogance, right? This is part of the unknowing of true reality. In the unenlightened mind, we think the reality is, is that there's a real self here, that there is a self, there is David, and David lives in Chiang Mai, he has a wife, he has a son, he does some fitness training uh, for clients, he's a teacher of Buddhist teachings, you know, he likes this, he likes that, and, and this is who David is, a certain identity, a certain image, right? And that's what the unenlightened mind holds on to, is this concept of a self. And what the Buddha is saying is, is in reality, is there is no self. That's what non-self is. Is the reality of it is, is there is no self. But because the unenlightened mind is afflicted with this poison of delusion or ignorance or unknowing of true reality, it thinks there is a self. And because it thinks there is a self and it's holding on to a self in the mind, now it becomes aggravated, it becomes hostile, it becomes irritated if somebody comments negatively about your clothes, about your hair, about your, your children, about your house, if something doesn't go quite the way that you would like in terms of if you don't get that recognition at work because you have a certain image and you're trying to uphold this certain image, the mind becomes hostile. It becomes upset or it becomes irritated. And that's the reason why is because the unenlightened mind is holding on to this concept of a self. And if we're going to eliminate this third poison, there's many different teachings that the mind needs to understand and practice. But one of those is, is eliminating the concept of a self and not holding on to thinking that there's a permanent self and recognizing that this self doesn't really exist. There's essentially a physical body. There's a mind, the consciousness, and these things are together in this instance. And in previous instances, there was a separate mind and a separate body. And if you're reborn, there's going to be a new body and a new mind, either in one of the lower realms or some other realm. So what we really have here is we have a physical body and we have a mind. There is no I. There is no me. There is no you. There is no this is my son, my wife, my life, my mom, my phone, my car, mine, mine, mine. That doesn't exist because all of these things are impermanent. They don't belong to us because there is no me. So I, I can't own this cell phone because there is no I, there is no me. This phone is impermanent. 
this body is impermanent, this mind is impermanent, so I can't own it. I can't take ownership over it. And if I do, then the mind's going to be discontent, right? So this is part of the unknowing of true reality is that the mind thinks there is a self. And then another part of it, if we wanna go back to the Four Noble Truths, is the mind thinks that other people are causing it to be frustrated right until you learn the four noble truths and you realize that you are causing your own discontent mind if you walk around in the unenlightened state and then you have in the past where you thought somebody else was causing your anger or someone else was making you frustrated that's unknowing of true reality because you were unknowing of the four noble truths and you didn't realize you were causing it yourself and you didn't realize you could eliminate it so if you've awakened to the Four Noble Truths, then you realize that you are causing your own discontent mind and you've eliminated some of that delusion or some of that ignorance or some of that unknowing of true reality. And then if you've investigated something simple like the five precepts and you look at those five precepts and you see how if you did any of those five precepts, those are unwholesome decisions that are going to cause unwholesome results. And if you see that very clearly, then you're lowering this delusion and ignorance. And now you're starting to practice that teaching of the five precepts more closely, as well as the Four Noble Truths. And if you investigate the Eightfold Path and you see how by practicing in the way the Buddha teaches, that's going to lead to better and better results then you're lowering this delusion or ignorance or unknowing of true reality. If you learn about the natural law of gamma and you start understanding it really, really well, that it's cause and effect or action and result, it's essentially the result of your decisions. If I decide to do something wholesome, then there's going to be wholesome results because of it. Whereas if I decide to do something unwholesome, there's going to be unwholesome results because of that. So if you see the natural law of gamma and it's very clear for you, we're just using this fancy word gamma because there's no other way to refer to it. But essentially what it is, is it's the result of our decisions. And if you see that very clearly, then this ignorance or unknowing of true reality is diminishing more and more and more. And you understand it intellectually but then you need to practice it in daily life where with that singleness of mind, you're making very good personal choices every single moment, more and more and more and more. So this is this third poison and the remedy is wisdom. You need to acquire wisdom. There is no meditation to meditate away this unknowing of true reality. So the first two there's a meditation practice and then there's the daily practice of either generosity or loving kindness. But here with this delusion or ignorance or unknowing of true reality, it's learning the teachings of the Buddha, applying them in daily life, seeing that they are in fact true, independently observing that they're true, not having belief, don't believe me, don't believe the Buddha, but learn and practice and see that it's the truth. And that's working to build wisdom where now that 
delusion or ignorance or unknowing of true reality is becoming less and less and less, right? And that other component of Sunday's talk, we talked about non-self. The other part was conceit or arrogance or judging others, right? We don't realize in the unenlightened state that by judging others, it actually harms us and it creates distance between us and other people. We don't realize by having this little bit of arrogance, it's actually creating problems in our life, this ego, right? This is the unknowing of true reality. And this is where you don't have to feel guilty. You don't have to feel shameful. You don't have to feel bad that you did things in the past because you were unknowing of true reality, right? And there's no reason to beat yourself up about things that you did in the past because you can't change those. But now, today, and every day after this, and you're working to learn these teachings and practice them so that you can develop wisdom and your mind will make better and better and better decisions because of this wisdom that you're acquiring. And as you make better and better, better decisions, you will move your, the mind closer and closer to enlightenment where you will have that singleness of mind. You will be practicing meditation on a regular basis. You will be practicing generosity. You'll be practicing loving kindness. All the teachings, the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the Five Precepts. You'll understand gamma, uh, the natural law of gamma. You'll understand the 10 fetters and you'll be eliminating those. You'll understand the four Brahma Viharas, which are in chapter 13. You're working on having relationships where you don't have attachment, but you can love, still have love without having craving and mental longing, trying to control this person with expectations. So you're gradually moving all these teachings more and more into practice. And it's going to take time. And there's no quick fix. There's no shortcut to enlightenment. And this is the gradual progression that the Buddha taught. And this is why he didn't just sit down under a tree and instantly become enlightened because he had to slowly, gradually learn all these teachings and implement them in his own life so he could see that they were actually working and they were improving the condition of his mind, making it more and more stable, more and more calm, more and more peaceful, more and more unshakable. Because when you have this wisdom of the teachings, and you've slowly, gradually learned them and put them into practice, nobody's ever going to shake you off of that because you see how they've improved the quality of the mind and the quality of your life. So you're never going to be shaken off of that because you're not building your practice on belief. You're building it on truth by you learning the teachings and then observing whether they're truth and through your implementation of those teachings, no one's ever going to be able to shake you off of that because you have the wisdom to know that they're working 100%. Okay, so this is just a bit of a review of the three poisons or the three unwholesome roots, the three fires, and diving into this third one, which is so important because without the teachings of the Buddha, somebody would never even know that craving is a problem. They wouldn't even ever know of that poison and they wouldn't ever know of the poison of hatred or anger 
They wouldn't ever know of the Four Noble Truths or the Eightfold Path. So it's really this third poison that kind of unlocks all the teachings and opens the mind up to now be able to actually work towards attaining enlightenment. Even though the primary problem is craving, the primary reason why the mind stays in the unenlightened state is because it doesn't have access to the teachings. It's unknowing of true reality. It doesn't even, it's not even aware that it has a problem. When your mind was sad or frustrated or angered or upset or feeling guilt or shame, before you learned about the Buddhist teachings, you, we, we all just thought that was just the way that life is and this is just the way it is. And we probably blamed other, other people. We thought it was everyone else's fault. But once you start getting access to these teachings, then starting to eradicate this third poison of delusion or ignorance or unknowing of true reality, it really starts to unlock all the other aspects of the mind to be able to now gradually awaken it. Any questions on this? I have a question from Leslie about craving. So does this mean that if we lose a loved one and we grieve for them, the only reason we are grieving is because we are attached to that person? Exactly, Leslie. You've got it 100% correct. The grieving process is optional. We only grieve when we lose a loved one because the mind has this craving, this desire, this attachment, this clinging, this longing, this holding on, this mental longing with a strong eagerness. The mind is uncomfortable with impermanence. The mind is unaware. That's part of the delusion. That's part of the ignorance and the unknowing of true reality is the mind is unaware that everything's impermanent. Even though on the surface, we know that everybody needs to die. But deep in the mind, it's uncomfortable with impermanence, that everything's constantly changing. There's no permanent fixed state. So when that loved one dies, there's this unknowing of true reality that impermanence even exists in the unenlightened state and without access to these teachings. And if the mind isn't trained to eliminate this craving, this desire, this attachment, this holding on, now when someone dies, we experience this impermanence. The mind doesn't like that. It craves permanence. And now because of that longing with a strong eagerness, the mind grieves. It becomes sad frustrated, maybe even angry when somebody dies, or lonely or bored. And we go through this whole grieving process, this deep sadness sometimes, even depression sometimes for many, many years after a death, right? And what we need to do is we need to realize that we can let go of this mental longing with a strong eagerness for this loved one and still retain the memories and still retain the good feelings. Because oftentimes when someone dies, we feel like when that hurt goes away, right? We feel like the more we hurt, the more we loved. It's almost like a way of honoring their death. The more we hurt, it kind of honors this death. But what we have to realize is that this hurt that we're feeling can be eliminated and there's no reason to hold on to that. And if we get rid of that hurt, i.e. get rid of the mental longing with a strong eagerness, and just appreciate the time that we had with our loved one, then we can more fully enjoy 
the memories of the good experiences that we had together and we don't have to hold on to this hurt of the person that we lost and that's the only reason why we grieve so as you get closer and closer to enlightenment don't be surprised when loved ones around you die and, and you don't feel any hurt you don't feel sad you don't feel depressed it doesn't mean you didn't love them because what love is or what true love is is a genuine wish for this person to be well and that's what true love is in, in a nutshell right so if you have this genuine wish for the person to be well and they die it's like okay they're gone but i really appreciated the time that we were together you don't have to grieve and feel like the carpet's been pulled out from under your feet this is one of the reasons why once you're enlightened you feel so good because even death doesn't cause the mind to be discontent even loved ones that are really close to you nothing will shake the mind nothing will cause it to be discontent but it comes with training it takes time to get there but you've got that a hundred percent correct leslie the whole reason why the mind grieves is because the mind is uncomfortable with impermanence it craves permanence and it has this mental longing for this relationship and for this person and the more you work on it you can eliminate that and still maintain the love and the good feelings thanks david i see someone just um posted something in the chat but i can't open it for some reason i struggle with still the concept trying. of non-self is this something that i start to grasp over time yes let's talk about non-self more let's get into it in, in a lot of detail and i was kind of anticipating that this would be a good time to do that since sunday was kind of really getting the bulk of ego talked about but here let's talk about non-self so non-self it's one of the three universal truths the buddha gave us three universal truths impermanence discontentedness and non-self these are universal truths. What non-self is, is the teaching that there is no self, okay? That's what the enlightened mind is going to understand, that there is no self. But now, because the mind is unenlightened, it thinks there's a self. It thinks that there's a Marcia, right? That's who asked this question. Marcia, right? Essentially, what we've got is when you were born, there was a body and there was a mind that came together and it was born into this world. And your parents gave you a name, Marcia, labeled, right? Here's the name. Because we can't really say that this bag of bones and fluid with a mind just came home from school and is doing their homework. We need to use some kind of name to refer to you and you get this name there's people around you who have certain expectations of you there's certain expectations that you develop for yourself and you start to form a certain identity and a certain image right we take on a certain persona right as part of acquiring this self because there is no self but as we age we start taking on more and more of a self in the mind so the self that we carry around in the unenlightened state is a concept that's held in the mind and the mind thinks that there's a self 
it thinks that Marcia exists because you've given this name, you've got a birth certificate, you sign your name, you've written it many times. We start associating the physical body with Marcia. This is Marcia or this is David. But if you investigate this closely, what you'll realize is however you view Marcia, that has changed over time. However you view yourself now, when you were a child, you looked at yourself much different. And then when you age to adolescence, you were, had a different image, a different identity. When you became a, an adult, your identity and your self-image started changing. And over the course of your life, this identity and self-image has kept changing as more and more expectations that you have for yourself and that other people have for you have been acquired. And you've kind of built this self in the mind this concept of a self. But if you investigate this and you go looking for where is Marcia, there is no Marcia. All there is is a physical body and a mind. You can't point to Marcia because if you point to the chest, then that's just your clothes. And if you take off your clothes and you point to your chest again, that's just the skin. And if you take the skin off, that's just the bones. And you get rid of that, that's just the organs. So there is no David. That's just a name that was assigned. There's just the physical body and the mind. And the mind holds on to this concept of a self with self-image and self-identity. And because of that, we think that David exists and we think that David is permanent. And now we become hostile and aggressive if somebody offends David. And everything becomes mine and we become very selfish beings. But what the Buddha is saying with non-self is there is no permanent, never changing self. The concept of the self is only in the mind. It only exists in the mind and we need to let that go. Just like we need to let go of everything else, we need to let go of that concept of a self and not hold on to it because it's gonna to continue to cause us problems in this life. We're gonna to continue to become discontent and hostile when somebody affects the self-image or the self-identity. We're gonna to continue to be selfish if we hold on to this concept of a self. So we need to let it go. Any follow-ups to that, Marcia, or anybody else that's learning with us today? It appears you have no questions at this time, David. Okay, so this teaching of non-self that is based on this concept of a self in the mind, it takes time to really soak it in. Because we spend so much time to accumulate this concept of a self, right? Everybody wants to know, who am I? Who am I? You're always searching for yourself. Sometimes when we get really angry or we get really frustrated or we're having a tough time, we say, I need to go be with myself or I need to find myself, right? And we keep searching for this self. I need to find myself, but we can never find it because it's not there. It doesn't exist. I need to go find myself. You know, we hear that at age 30, 40, 50, 60 years old, you'll hear people that say, I need to go find myself. They still haven't found the self because there is no self, right? It doesn't exist. So 
we need to recognize that there is no self. We just have this name to make it convenient for people to refer to us. And we need to eradicate any kind of thoughts that there is a self and practice being humble, practice being peaceful, practice letting go and not seeing everything as mine, mine, mine. And by doing that, the mind will become more and more peaceful. It's almost like when somebody says something negative towards you, if you're practicing these teachings, it's almost like wind. It just blows past you, like it doesn't even affect you. It doesn't even stick on you. Because if you're practicing these teachings closely and someone talks hostile to you, right away you know that's their anger. That's their hatred. They're causing it themselves. Right? So why would I get angry? Why would I allow myself to get hostile? Because somebody else is making themselves hostile. There's no benefit for me to also get angry or hostile as well or frustrated. So letting go of this self when people say things negatively or cut you off in traffic or any of these other things, the mind can reside peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy because it's not protecting this self. This goes into the next chapter that we're going to talk about on Sunday, which is all about fears. Oftentimes fears come from this holding on of this concept of a self. We become very fearful because we feel there's a self here and we get very fearful. We fear losing our life. We fear losing our children. We fear losing so many things because we're holding on so tightly. When if we just recognize there is no self, that nothing belongs to me because there is no me, then we can be much more peaceful. The mind can be more liberated. Okay. Question, Matt? Question from Manal. She asks, would finding a partner or marrying someone be taking you further away from practicing non-self and non-attachments? Not necessarily. Uh, If you choose to have a partner, it means that now you guys need to work together to learn and practice these teachings. Because if you're learning and practicing the teachings and they're not, they're going to look at love completely different than you. And they're going to be having craving and desire and attachment. And when you're pulling away and not wanting to do that, that you're just wanting to have a peaceful life with them and kind of have this light relationship where you're not squeezing it and crushing it. You just want to have this light relationship, but they're going to want to crush it because they're going to have craving. They don't realize that they're actually sabotaging the relationship. So if you're practicing non-attachment, non-craving, and they're not practicing, then there's going to be conflict here. So having a life partner can be a very rewarding part of life, but you have to make sure that they're seeing life in the same way as you, that they're interested in practicing non-attachment. Otherwise, the relationship's going to be highly discontent because they're going to want to pull you and pull you and pull you, and you're not going to be interested in that. So having a partner, having children, these things don't take you away from enlightenment. It just makes it that you have to learn a lot more because you're gonna now have to build your wisdom of what it means to love without attachment. How to love your partner and love your child without attachment. You're gonna have to learn more about that. 
But you are going to have to do that with your friends, your mother, your father, your brother, your sisters, and all these other people anyway. But these other relationships, a life partner or children, they're really, really close relationships where craving, desire, attachment can be very strong and can hold on very tightly. So you have to learn and develop your practice very deeply in order to have a life partner and or a child. So it's not going to take you away from enlightenment. It just means that you've got more to learn and more to practice in order to get there. You have to build up your wisdom even more. But should you do that, and you do learn and practice these teachings, building up your wisdom to practice true love, where you're just holding the relationship in your hands and you're just supporting your partner and you're supporting your children if you choose to have children, or if you just have a partner, for example, with no children, if you just hold the relationship and you don't crush it, if you learn how to do that, it will be the most rewarding relationship that you ever have because you're never discontent. You're never angry at each other. You're never frustrated at each other. You never have any problems, so to speak. You never have harsh words. But when you first get together, there's a lot of figuring out and a lot of learning each other. But once you do that, you can have very rewarding and fulfilling relationships more than you probably ever thought was possible. We have a follow-up from Masia about non-self. She says, thanks, David. So it follows that once we realize non-self, then any ego will disappear. The ego is comprised of the personal existence view, which is self-identity and self-image, as well as conceit or arrogance or judging others, putting yourself above others. So the ego is both of those things combined. So if you eliminate the self, there can still be ego present because there can still be arrogance. There can still be conceit. There can still be judging of other people and putting yourself up. So the Buddha split these things out as non-self or personal existence view and conceit where we're combining them and calling them ego. But in reality, they're two different things. So just because you've eliminated the self doesn't mean the ego's gone. You still have more work to do to make sure that there's no arrogance, there's no conceit, there's no judging of other people. Thank you, David. We have no more questions. Okay. The next part that I wanted to share with you guys, and some of you guys that have been studying with me for a while now, you've seen these before, but you never know who's going to be in our class sessions. So I always like to kind of share some content that I've shared in the past. So I would like to share this words from Gautama Buddha where he talks about loving kindness because that's the whole topic of today's talk is practicing loving kindness meditation. And I like to show you some of the Buddha's words every now and again to help you see that these teachings are coming from the Buddha and he's absolutely prescribing loving kindness meditation as a way to abandon ill will. And here in this first line, here he's talking to his son, right? This is another good, important teaching because a lot of people think that the Buddha left his family entirely and never looked back, which isn't true. His son and his wife actually uh, became ordained with him. 
So here, this is his son, Rahula. He's teaching him. He's saying, Rahula, develop meditation on loving kindness. For when you develop meditation on loving kindness, any ill will will be abandoned. So that poison of hatred or anger that he describes to use loving kindness meditation for, it's also called ill will. So when we list it out as the fetters, people will usually describe it as ill will. But it's all referring back to that same poison of hatred, anger, ill will. This is where our frustration, our anger, our hostility, our irritation, our annoyance, all of that comes out of that poison. So loving kindness meditation or cultivating active goodwill towards all beings is prescribed by the Buddha right here as a remedy to eliminate ill will. And there's lots of other places where he talks about it too in his teachings. But this was just a short one that I could put on the screen for you guys. And then here's another one where he says, loving kindness should be developed to abandon ill will. He just makes it very clear. This is why the Buddhist teachings are timeless. Because he taught how to train the mind. And the human mind hasn't changed in all of these years, 2,500 years. The remedies that he came up with to solve these problems are the same remedies that solve the problems then will solve the problems now. The same problems that he saw 2,500 years ago are the same problems of the mind that we have today. So that's why the remedies are exactly the same. And he can speak very clearly like this. There's no interpretation here with his teachings. If you're studying his teachings from him directly, and they're very good quality translations, there's really no interpretation whatsoever. It's just very clear. So here he's showing you very clearly what you need to do in order to eliminate ill will or hatred or anger is practice loving kindness meditation and then practice it in daily life. Okay? And that's what we're going to do today. And then if you would like to incorporate this into your meditation practice, it's very good. Not only to eliminate hatred or anger or ill will, frustration, irritation, annoyance, all of these things, but it's also really good for resentment and forgiving people. Oftentimes when harmful things happen to us in our life, the mind holds on to that. That's the craving. That's what the mind holds on to. It loves to hold on. That's what the mind does. So we've had this maybe horrible thing that happened to us 5, 10, even 20, 30 years ago and the mind still has resentment or it still has anger or frustration because of that harmful thing that somebody might have done to us. And as long as you hold on to that, you're not going to get enlightened. You're not going to get to that peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy because it's still holding on to that hurt. And why would you do that to yourself? And this is where you get better and better of letting things go not just from the past, because some of those old wounds can have scars on them and it's kind of really hard to let them go. But when you're going about your day and somebody talks hostile to you or cuts you off in the traffic or whatever it is, don't hold on to that stuff. Let it go because it's only going to hurt the mind. But these things that are in the past 
oftentimes we have resentment. And loving kindness meditation and practicing loving kindness in daily life can really help you to let that go. Of course, breathing mindfulness meditation is the primary practice to train the mind to let go. But if you've had something that's happened in your past and the mind is holding on because it's so good at craving and there is resentment there, one of the ways to kind of chip away at it is to practice loving kindness meditation, is include the people in your life that have harmed you, include them in your loving kindness meditation. This is almost like getting a new tool, right? You might take a certain tool and kind of try to chip away at that craving, and you've been working on chipping away at the craving with the breathing mindfulness meditation, and the craving holding on to that resentment and that harmful experience that happened to you in the past, but now incorporating the loving kindness meditation is like bringing out another tool and chipping away at it from that angle as well and starting to let go of some of that resentment that you might hold for people in the past or situations that happened in the past, okay? This is the information that I use to share loving kindness meditation. There's lots of different ways to do loving kindness meditation. I found this is the absolute best way. And the people that I teach this to tell me that it really works well for them as well. What we're going to do in meditation is I'll start out with chanting like I always do. And then we move into breathing mindfulness meditation. And I'll provide some guidance during that. Then I'll just let you be on your own for a period of time with breathing mindfulness meditation. Then I'll start with loving kindness meditation. And I'm going to use these affirmations and I'm going to say them out loud. If I was doing this on my own or if you're doing it on your own, you would just do it quietly in the mind. But I'm going to do it out loud so you can hear it. And when you hear it, just repeat it in the mind on the out breath. So as you're breathing and breathing mindfulness meditation, you should be really aware of the breath. And then when we get to loving kindness meditation and I say, may I be peaceful. And you hear that on your next out breath, just repeat that in the mind. May I be peaceful. And then I'll say, may I be safe. May I be well. May I be free of discontentness and the suffering it causes. Now notice here we're using I, right? With non-self, we know that there is no I, there is no me, there is no you, but we need to use some pronoun to refer to this human experience. So we recognize that this pronoun I or me or you, it's really unfitting to truly describe the experience of this body and this mind together. But just know that we're using I just to refer to this experience, but it really isn't properly fitting. And that's just the limitation of language. But we're gonna start with I, we're gonna start with me, we're gonna start with this mind. That's essentially what we're referring to is this mind, right? That's the I, or that's the you. Because we need to cultivate active goodwill without judgment for ourselves. If we don't do that for ourselves, how could we ever cultivate it for other people? 
So we have to start with I first. We have to start with this mind first. Because oftentimes we have negative self-talk and it just sits there and kind of chats with us and tells us all these bad things about our, ourself. And we need to eliminate that. And the way to do that is through loving kindness meditation. So that's why we always start with I, or in your case, you. Then from there, I'll go to may we, and I'm just referring to we, meaning all of us meditating. I'm not sending you loving kindness. I'm not trying to ask you to be peaceful. I'm not wishing for you to be peaceful. I'm not sending you the intention to be peaceful. That's not what's going on here. What's going on here is I'm cultivating in my mind that I will have active goodwill without judgment for you, for we, meaning all of us. All of this meditation and all of the practices of the Buddha is to train your mind. There's nothing that we actually send out peace to other people. We cultivate it in our mind so that then when we are with other people, we have active goodwill towards them, irregardless of how they act, irregardless of how they talk, irregardless of what happens. We just have active goodwill, a genuine wish for them to be peaceful, safe, well, and be free of discontentness. Okay, so it's, it's we. From there, I'll just come up with some other affirmations and I never really know what they are until I start my meditation. And the past, sometimes I would sit down with the intention to do loving kindness meditation for certain people that I was having trouble with, right? I either had a customer or a family member or an employee that I was feeling hostility towards. I was feeling anger or I was feeling ill will. And rather than harbor that, which is going to only cause harm to this mind, I went into meditation with the intention to cultivate active goodwill for that person. And I know in the Facebook group recently, we've had some different talks about moms. And I also had challenges with my parental relationships growing up too. And early on, I used to do a lot of loving kindness meditation involving my mom because I had certain resentment towards my mom for the type of childhood that I had. So I needed to release that. And that's how I know that this works for resentment because it worked for me. And you eventually get to a point where you can release that over multiple sessions. So include people in your rings, your affirmations that you're having trouble with. You're having trouble practicing active goodwill with, right? You're not wishing that they talk kind to you. You're not wishing that they be a better person because you can't change them. Your meditation isn't going to work to change somebody else, but you can change your mind. You can practice active goodwill yourself. You can have a genuine wish for others to be peaceful, safe, well, and free of discontentness. And when you do that, when you happen to be in close proximity to these people, either in conversations or family events or business meetings or what have you, now you'll have more active goodwill that you can practice loving kindness in those relationships 
because you've cultivated it during your meditation. Okay, so we'll go through some couple of rings and then we'll end with all beings and then a chant at the end. And if you guys have questions once we're done the meditation, we can take questions at that time. Okay, so go ahead and get into meditation. If you're going to do seated or lying or standing, just get yourself comfortable. If you need to click off the lights, you can do that. Just make yourself comfortable. If you're sitting on the floor, you should have cross legs, but not real tight. You want to kind of have loose legs so your circulation doesn't get cut off. If you're sitting in a chair, just sit with your feet flat on the floor or cross leg up to you. There's not just one way to do this. Your upper body should be in the middle, supported with your own muscles so that your body is actively engaged with the muscles. This is going to keep the mind attentive and alert, right? We don't want the mind to doze off during meditation. We want it to stay active and attentive and alert. So by using our upper body muscles and keeping those engaged, it's going to keep the mind active and alert and attentive. Now with the hands and arms, if you put the right hand over the left with the thumbs together, and then just place those in your lap. If that works for you, that's great. If not, just put your palms face down on your lap or your knees or wherever. The important thing is that your body's comfortable but not luxurious. Because if the body's too luxurious, it's gonna have a tendency for the mind to become inactive and you can't actively train it. So you want the body to be comfortable and relaxed but not luxurious. So now just close the eyes and start focusing on the breath. Just take some nice, steady breaths in through the nose and out through the nose. Focusing the mind on the breath. Just become aware of the breath. Focusing the mind on the breath is training it to be in the present moment because the breath is the present moment. I'm going to do some chants and then I'll be back with some more guidance. Arahang Samasam Hoto Mahakawa Potang Mahakawandang Apiwa Tami Sawakato Mahakawata Tammo Tamang Namasami Supatipano Bhakavato Savakasankho Sankhang Namami Namami 
Continuing to focus on the breath, breathing in and out through the nose. Just focus on the breath. As the mind has thoughts of the past or the future, just cut them off, let them go. And if the mind wanders, Wherever you notice it, just cut it off. Whether it's one minute or three minutes, try not to allow the mind to wander. Maintain the focus on the breath. But if you notice it does wander, wherever you notice it, wherever you finally pick up on it, just cut it off right there, let it go and bring the mind to the breath. If there's thoughts or ideas or perceptions, just let them go. Don't hold on to anything. Just let it all go. I'm gonna let you hear on your own for a bit. And then I'll come back with loving-kindness meditation. So you have nowhere to go. There's nothing to do. No one needs you right now. Just meditate. Focus on the breath. Let it all go.
Now that we've practiced breathing mindfulness meditation, we'll move into loving kindness meditation. Continuing to focus on the breath. On the out breath, repeat this affirmation in the mind. May I be peaceful. Be safe. be free of discontentness and the suffering that it causes. peaceful. May we be safe. free of discontentedness and the suffering it causes. close to me, be peaceful. 
May they be safe. free of discontentedness and the suffering that it causes. peaceful. May they be safe. discontentedness and the suffering that it causes. safe.
may they be well. May they be free of discontentedness and the suffering that it causes. May all beings, wherever they reside, here on earth or far, far beyond, may they all be peaceful. May they be safe. May they be well. May they be free of discontentedness and the suffering that it causes. Arahang Samma Samhoto Mahakava Potang Mahakavanhang Apivati Ami Savakato Mahakavata 
Tamang namasami. Sopatipanom hakawato sawakasangko sanghang namami. Napmodhasabhakavato Arahato Samma Samputasa Napmodhasabhakavato Arahato Samma Samputasa Napmodhasabhakavato Arahato Samma Samputasa Itipiso Mahakava Arahang Samma Samhoto Vichacharanang samhuno Sakato rukavitu Anutero purisa Tamasati sata tawamanusanang Bhūtto Bhagavati Okay, if you guys would like to come out of meditation With loving-kindness meditation you can really create as many rings as you like. It's really up to you. There's a bit of creativity here. And it kind of needs to be fluid because who and what groups or what person that you need to cultivate active goodwill towards is going to change. There's going to be people that come and go out of your life and you're going to need to use this meditation to cultivate that active goodwill to eliminate the hatred, eliminate the anger, eliminate the ill will. Now, when you're angry at somebody, you can use this meditation and see how it works. But the idea is, is that you make it a regular part of your meditation practice so that you kind of get ahead of the curve so that you're filling up the gas tank, so to speak, long before you might interact with them. So I know holidays tend to be a bit challenging for a lot of people to be around families for 4th of July for the U.S. is coming up and other holidays. I hear people tell me all the time that it's a really tough time for them. Weddings, 
different things like this. So if you know that you're headed into a situation in a few weeks or a few months and it's going to be particularly challenging, use this meditation well ahead of time to really cultivate loving kindness, really build this up. Doing this daily with your breathing mindfulness meditation practice that will help prepare you so that when you go into that situation, whether it's a wedding or a cookout or some event, that you're going to be practicing more active goodwill towards all beings and include people that you're having trouble with, that your mind is holding on to hatred or anger or ill will, or your mind is frustrated or irritated with this person or annoyed. If you're having those feelings, you need to include that into your meditation. and You need to let it go. Any resentment that you're holding in order to attain enlightenment, there needs to be active goodwill towards all beings. Not just people who agree with us, not just people who we like, not just people we consider our friends, or not just people that are in our family that we get along with. It needs to be all beings. Not having any hostility or irritation, annoyance, no hatred or anger, ill will towards any being. That includes humans as well as animals as well. Some people will even include animals into this. You can even include the various realms, right? Like we have the heavenly realm, human realm, animal, afflicted spirits, and the hell realm. You can even go through the various realms, all beings, right? So there's some creativity here. You always want to start with I, meaning you, and you always want to end with some version of all beings. You want to be all-inclusive. Don't leave anyone out. Okay. Any questions on this meditation or breathing mindfulness meditation or any of the other things that we've been covering in the group learning program? Yes, I can see that uh, James has raised his hand. So let's go to James first. Over to you, James. I was just wondering um, when things may be um, normal in our lives, is there a certain um, ratio to which we should be um, practicing breathing mindfulness compared to loving kindness? Totally up to you. You know, if you're, if you're practicing right mindfulness, awareness of mind, and you're noticing that there's still some ill will or hatred or frustration or anger in there, then it should definitely be a regular part of your practice. I would suggest to keep it a regular part of your practice until you go three months, six months, where there's no hatred or anger for any particular person or group of people. So I would make it a part of your regular practice. If you really want to focus on breathing mindfulness meditation, you could do that for several weeks and then bring in loving kindness for several weeks. Totally up to you. You could do loving kindness every day along with your breathing mindfulness meditation. Or you might decide to do breathing mindfulness meditation in the morning and then in the evening do a little bit of breathing mindfulness meditation with loving kindness. This is where each practice is unique and different and by you practicing and seeing what works best for you then you can choose to do it that way and whatever you do whatever you're noticing benefits with don't get fixed on that and and hold on to that 
and know that even your meditation practice is impermanent, that it needs to be fluid and fluctuate as the mind needs more or less training of either eliminating this craving or eliminating this hatred and anger. I used to do daily. It was a daily practice for me for quite a while. I used to have quite a bit of anger and <laughs> quite a bit of anger, <laughs> lots and lots of anger. And uh, I, I did it for quite a while as a regular daily practice, but every person's different. So you have to figure it out and practice and see what works, see what your mind needs. Thank you. Uh, I've typically been doing breathing mindfulness, but I've found that when I do the loving kindness and the sessions on Wednesday and such, that um, it's really beneficial. So maybe I'll work it into um, a regular program. Yeah, if you're feeling like, you know, tension and stress, uh, hostility, you know, any of those feelings, you definitely want to bring it in and keep it there for a good long while. Just because you go one or two days and, and that stuff has gone down, don't just take it right out and stop doing it. Because what you're doing with these poisons is you're extinguishing them. You're gradually extinguishing them. It's not a quick fix. So if you choose to bring it in and then you feel the hostility and anger go down, don't just, okay, I'm done because for one day I've been feeling good. Like just keep it in there for a good long bit because you really want to extinguish it, bring it down, extinguish that fire. Thank you. Yep. Any other questions, Max? We have a question from Biblob on Facebook. He asks, is it a craving to attain Nirvana? Can you crave to attain Nirvana? So this is where it's really important, like to really understand craving. Some people will say just having a child is an attachment, but that's not true. It's all about how the mind relates to it. So if there's a mental longing with a strong eagerness for Nibbana, then that's an attachment, that's a craving, that's a desire. But if you're pursuing it as a goal or an interest or an objective, you're not pushing so hard. You're not, oh, I got to get this in the next three months. And oh, I want this so bad. That's a craving. That's a desire and an attachment. What you need to do is just apply gradual training nice objective, a nice goal, a nice interest. So everything and anything can be a craving. It can be a, a, either a craving and desire attachment. You can develop a mental longing with a strong eagerness for literally anything in the world, but you can also eliminate it as well. And eliminating the craving, the desire, the attachment doesn't mean you eliminate the relationship doesn't mean you eliminate the possession, doesn't mean you eliminate the goal or the interest. What it means is you train the mind to eliminate that mental longing, that strong eagerness. You have to eliminate that. So then you can still have a car, you can still have a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a job, a phone, all of these different things. You can still have an interest to pursue Nibbana. You can still have an interest to have a career but if you pursue that career, nose to the grindstone, pushing, 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 that craving is gonna drive you to make decisions that you otherwise wouldn't have made. And this drive that you have for the career, it's probably gonna come falling down anyway because 
you're not going to be making good wholesome decisions whereas if you have this goal like for example for a career and you pursue it and it's a goal and it's an interest but you practice these good wholesome teachings you practice meditation you're developing singleness of mind you understand the natural law of gamma practicing the eightfold path the five precepts all the time then all the decisions you're making that lead to that good career are going to be more and more wholesome decisions which are going to have better and better results for you so that would be pursuing a goal or an interest without attachment that's non-attachment and for an example of a child if you're pushing your child to do things if you have certain expectations for them you want them to do certain things that's an attachment that's craving that's desire that's the mental longing with a strong eagerness but if you're shaping their future if you're helping to guide them if you're being a good role model for them if you have certain objectives certain interests certain goals that you're motivating and encouraging them to pursue and you're kind of holding the relationship lightly not trying to control or force the relationship then that's practicing non-attachment so you can either have an attachment for anything on in the world or you cannot it's it's not really a matter of just i'm pursuing enlightenment therefore it's an attachment or i have a child therefore it's an attachment or i have a relationship therefore it's an attachment it's all about how the mind relates to it so you can pursue all of these things or have possessions or have relationships careers these kind of things but just don't have that strong burning eagerness to acquire these things or to hold on to these things. Thanks David, we have no more questions. Okay. So I will say goodbye and wish you guys a very good rest of your day. On Sunday, we're going to be covering fears because oftentimes the mind holds on to fear and fears that we have in the mind can inhibit us from enlightenment. So if we're afraid of certain things it will inhibit us from attaining enlightenment i told you guys a story a couple of weeks ago where my son at the age of about 2 2 and a half years old we were walking down the street in america and a big dog came running up to him put his paws on his shoulders and just started licking his face well my son at age 2 2 and a half got really scared and started screaming and crying and you know i i grabbed him and picked him up so he would feel a little bit better but now all these years later even up to like a year and a half ago he was afraid of dogs he wouldn't go near dogs he wouldn't even touch them and i asked him if he ever remembered what happened when he was an american he said no he never remembered it he didn't know that that had happened to him but the mind was holding on to it even from age 2 to 2 and a half So had we not identified that 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 was a fear that his mind was holding on to we would have never been able to help him extinguish it. So since I noticed that he was scared of dogs, I started taking him around dogs and showing him that dogs can be friendly, they can be kind, you can pet them and slowly helped him to eradicate this fear of dogs. Right? Children can also be afraid of the dark. Right? And I had to train my son to not be afraid of the dark and there were certain ways that I did that 
to help train them to not be afraid of the dark. And there are certain fears that you might have. You might have fear of losing your job or fear of losing one of your parents or fear of any number of things. So it's important that we discuss fear, which is chapter 18 in the book. And I'm going to explain to you guys how to eliminate these fears. And what I found is they're actually a lot easier to eliminate than we realize. These phobias and these fears that we have, they really inhibit the mind from being peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. So we need to learn about fears, learn about how to resolve them and eliminate them from the mind for ourselves. And if we're working with our children, learning how to help them eliminate them too. So that way the mind can become enlightened, peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. If it's got fear, it's going to be somewhat neurotic. So that's why we got to let it go and train the mind to let go of that fear. So until Sunday at nine o'clock, have a really great rest of your day. Enjoy the next few days up until Sunday. Keep meditating, breathing mindfulness meditation each day. Add in loving kindness meditation if you like. And then we'll get together on Sunday and talk about fear. So have a good rest of your day and we'll see you next time. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.